Good morning. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge. Awesome to have you with us. Hello to all of you joining us online. Thanks for engaging with us through that platform as well. And we're wrapping up a series today called Irresistible. And uh, I want to start by talking about some terms that all of us have learned over the last year. All of us have learned new terms, right? Uh, the first term that I learned was COVID. Never heard that before. In fact, we were on a family vacation, got home, and uh, it was a Tuesday. We had get, just gotten home that weekend. And on Tuesday, um, some members of our staff said, hey, what are we going to do about this COVID situation? And I said, what is COVID? And I had heard of coronavirus, but I had never heard it referred to as COVID yet. That's how early on we were. And, and they said, well, are we going to shut down for the COVID thing? And I said, I don't know. What's COVID? And then they said, coronavirus. And I go, oh, no, we're not going to shut down. And then the next day, the NBA canceled. And then we said, we're going to shut down. And so ever since then, we've all been learning some new terms, haven't we? Here's some terms we've learned. Social distancing. Brand new term. We've never used that term before. Uh, we put these words together. Really, it's physical distancing, but we went with social distancing. And, and uh, we've learned that term. We learned the term, not a new term, but we've used it more in the last year than we've ever used it before. Unprecedented times. Don't you love it? <laughs> no. <laughs> How about this? Uh, we've, we've used these phrases, lockdown, mask mandate, and probably your all-time favorite, the new normal. <laughs> You're like, why did I come to church today? This is, this is just making me tense right now. <laughs> but here's what's amazing. This phrase, new normal, uh, is interesting to me because it's exactly what we've been talking about for the last four weeks, is that when Jesus came into the world, he brought a new normal. He took what was old, the temple model, and the temple model was this thing that was um, this old way of looking at things, this, it, but it was the norm. The norm was that you had sacred spaces with sacred texts and sacred men, and they were the only ones who could interpret it for the sincere followers, and they would tell you all the things you needed to do in order to be good with God. And that was the norm, and Jesus came into the world, and he said, no, 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 there's a new normal. Okay, so I want to kind of, I want to reclaim that phrase, new normal, for something good. And I want to hijack it and use it for what Jesus came to do. He brought a new normal. In fact, the new normal that Jesus brought was, first of all, a new covenant. So Jesus said, on the night he was betrayed, he, he said, this is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. It's a new covenant between God and humanity. And now, instead of one covenant, this old covenant or this old agreement that God had that was conditional, that was with one nation. Jesus said, now God has an unconditional covenant, an unconditional agreement, and it's with all nations and all people for all time. And then he brought this new context. No more loopholes. Jesus would say, no longer would you be allowed to keep the letter of the law and violate the spirit of the law. No longer would you be able to, to view the law just through the letter of it, but violate the spirit in which it was written. From now on, followers of Jesus would view the law through the lens of love. And then he brought a whole new ethic. He said, as I have loved you, you are to love each other. It's not as other people love you, you're to love them back, or love them the way that you want them to love you. He said, no, as I have loved you, to the degree, to the extent that you have experienced my love, you're to love other people that way. A whole new ethic. And it started a whole new movement. Brand new movement. Jesus would establish his church. And that's a word that shouldn't even be in our English Bible because it's a, it's a German word that means house of the Lord. And it brings us back to sacred spaces. And what we've said through the series is this isn't a sacred space. This is a gathering space. That the most sacred thing in the world is the you beside you and the you behind you and the you in front of you. And that's what's sacred, that Jesus replaced that. And so Jesus didn't come to establish a place. He came to establish a people 
And the little Greek word that's used is ekklesia. It's, it's a gathering or a group or an assembly because Jesus gathered people around a very simple claim that he was God in the flesh to show us God's love and that this group, this church, this, this people would build around that idea. All of it brand new. And here's what's amazing. When Jesus first came into the world, he was really irresistible. He was really, uh, he was really difficult to resist. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And he liked them back. And they wanted to be around him. And what we've discovered through this series is that so many people today are resisting church because of an experience that they had, because unintentionally the church put up some barriers, the church put up some walls. Uh, instead of building bridges, they built some walls. And, and the church created rules and regulations that actually kept people out instead of inviting people in. Or they had an interaction with someone who claimed to be a Christian but didn't love very well. And so then... For, for many people, they end up resisting church, and they end up resisting Jesus in the process because they're resisting church. And that shouldn't be the case because most of the things that people resist about church are things that the church should resist about itself. And so what makes the Jesus movement so difficult to resist is that Jesus taught sacred spaces are done. The Holy Spirit that inhabited the temple now inhabits people. Now, now lives inside of us. You have never met anything more sacred than the you beside you. There is no building, there is no plot of dirt that is more sacred than the person next to you. In fact, uh, there's a uh, theologian named C.S. Lewis, uh, an author and a scholar and a theologian who wrote this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now you'd be strongly tempted to worship. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Because in the Jesus movement, what's sacred is people. That the Holy Spirit lives in people, which means at the end of the day that the Jesus model is far less complicated. It's not about rules and regulations and checking all the right boxes, but it is far more demanding. Because when you ask the question, what does love require of me, and you genuinely seek to live out the answer to that question, there are no loopholes. And it forces us to love. Now, this was to be the single command. This was to be the one thing that serves as the filter for everything else. The Old Testament and the New Testament are simply commentary about how to live. Their application of this one idea that Jesus gave. As I have loved you, love one another. And the early church did this so well. The early church didn't have anything to complicate this. Because all they knew was two things. They knew that Jesus rose from the dead... We saw him die and we saw him resurrected, so they did not fear death. And all they knew was this command of Jesus, as I have loved you, love one another. And this one simple idea, they said, okay, I know what Jesus did for me. What is the best way for me to do for others what Jesus has done for me? And this is what astounded and shocked the pagan world. Because followers of Jesus took this idea, and they didn't fear death, and, and they took this idea that whatever Jesus has done for me, I'm going to do that for others. And they did that for pagans who didn't believe what they believed and didn't see the world the way that they saw the world. And as a result of that, pagans started to go, what, what is with this? Like nobody loves people without getting anything in return. Nobody does that. That's a, that's a distinctly Jesus idea. That is not how the world worked. It's not how our world works. And so the idea that you would love someone 
without expecting anything in return, was brand new. And pagans started to follow Jesus because they couldn't figure out why followers of Jesus loved them so well. And pagans all over the Roman Empire began to follow a Jewish carpenter from Galilee named Jesus. And over time, what started to happen is that people started to then mix and match the old. They started to take some of the old and they started to mix it with Jesus. In fact, for about uh, 300 years, Christianity was persecuted by the Roman Empire. Christianity was on the fringes and it was countercultural. It went against the grain of culture and it stood out as a, as a bright light in a dark world. And then in the 4th century, Constantine became the emperor and, and he decided to take Christianity and move it to the forefront and make it the state religion. And the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire. And the Catholic Church became the Roman Catholic Church. And politics and religion got in bed together and the result was disastrous. Because in that, the church provided the empire with a theology that allowed them to use violence in the name of Jesus. And then the empire provided the church with power in politics. And in the midst of all that, love was lost. And moving forward, people started to hold on to old things, political power, sacred spaces, sacred texts, sacred men. That was all part of this Roman Empire and this Roman church that would not allow the common people to even own the scriptures. You could be put to death if you owned a copy of the scriptures. It wasn't until the Reformation in the 1500s that a guy named William Tyndale finally translated the scriptures into the English language so that everyday people could read the Bible for themselves. And he was put to death for doing it. And all of a sudden, it got all bogged down. It was, it was the old and the new, and it, there was some Jesus in there, but it was a lot of power, and it was a lot of sacred spaces and sacred men and sacred texts. And love got lost in the process because when you hold on to old things, you lose sight of the main thing. And a little bit of the wrong thing can corrupt the whole thing. And 14 years ago, we started Westbridge Church because we wanted to be a church that was a part of the solution. We wanted to be a church, a gathering of people, not a building, but a gathering of people who are committed to the new normal that Jesus came to bring. The new normal, a group of people gathered around the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and that he brings hope and life and love. And when the church of Jesus lives and operates the way that it was designed to operate, I truly believe it's irresistible. I think it's really difficult to resist. And so, in the few minutes that we have today as we wrap up the series, I want to talk about five terms five words that maybe when we view it through the old lens and the temple model have shifted. And, and when Jesus came into the world, he took these five terms and he flipped them around and he gave us a brand new lens through which to see these five words. And that if we could begin to see these things the way that Jesus does, I think we would be a church that's irresistible. The first one is this, structure. The first word is structure. See, when Jesus came into the world, he said, the church is a body, not a kingdom. The church is a body, not a kingdom. When Jesus was being interviewed by Pilate before his crucifixion, he said, Pilate, I've got good news for you. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight for me, they would defend me against you, but my kingdom is not of this world. And the Apostle Paul later on would talk about the kingdom of God, but it's not a kingdom in the way that we understand kingdoms. He says the way that this kingdom operates is it's, it's more like a body. And when he went around and he traveled around the Mediterranean and he traveled around uh, Europe and he traveled eventually to Rome and 
He would start churches. He would start ecclesias. He would start groups, churches. He didn't start kingdoms. He talked about the kingdom of God, but in the way that it operated, he said, we're more like a body. And each of us is a part of it. He says, you're, you're representatives of Jesus. So work together to represent Jesus well to the people around you. He said, the, the king isn't here. So in the meantime, we are his ambassadors. We go into the world and we represent the, the kingdom that we're a part of. But we do that together. He says, the way it operates is it's like we're a body. In fact, he writes this, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Each of you is a part of it. That means every single one of us has been given a, a role to play in the body of Christ. I have a role to play, you have a role to play, every one of us has a God-given role to play in the body of Christ. Which means this, if you aren't engaged in the body of Christ, it means that something is missing. And if you're not engaged, it means that you're missing something. If you're not engaged somewhere in the body of Christ, something is missing in the body of Christ. We're missing something, and you're missing something. It's why we're wearing these brainwashed t-shirts today. <laughs> Say yes, because at the end of the service, we're going to ask you to engage and join a team if you're not already joining a team, and we want you to say yes. And so we're going to keep flashing it at you all service long. Say yes. And you're just like, oh, I think I should say yes. I don't know why, but I just feel like something about saying yes. But here's why. It's because we want something for you. It's not because we want something from you. It's because you're a part of the body of Christ. You're a part of something that is bigger than yourself. And in the temple model, in the old way of viewing it, you go to church. You attend church. And it's all about you getting something. The, the key word in the old temple model is consume. I go there and I attend so that I can get something for me. But in the, in the Jesus model, it isn't about consume. In, in the Jesus model, the key word is engagement. That I don't just attend, I actually go and I engage and I participate with the rest of the body because I'm actually a part of something bigger than myself. It's a brand new way of looking at it. See, do you know what it means if you are not engaged in the part of the body? Do you know, do you know what that means? Like, you, you can't say, I'm a part of the body, but I, but I don't actually do anything. That means that if you're not engaged with the body, you are an amputated body part. Do you know what an amputated body part is? It's gross. <laughs> don't be gross. We want you to engage. Right? Can you imagine if every single person who was a part of Westbridge Church decided, you know what? This isn't about just attending. I am the church. Because Jesus didn't create spaces that we attend. He, he said, no, I'm building a church, a group, a gathering, a people. He isn't about building a space. He's about building a people. And I'm a part of that. I have a unique role to play. So what is my role? What does that look like? That's why after service, right behind this wall, we've got this whole big thing set up and a bunch of cards there with volunteer positions that you can jump into and grab. And I want to encourage you, if you're not serving somewhere, one of the best things you can do in response to this message today would be to say, you know what? I'm going to jump into a team. Here's why. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ. And that means... We don't just attend church to consume. We engage with the body because that's who we are. That's who God created us to be. Can you imagine if there were no spectators at Westbridge Church? If the only spectators were had were the people who were exploring faith in God. But for every person who said, I'm a follower of Jesus, if every one of us got on a team and engaged and served, the difference that would make would be incredible. 
And if you're not engaged, you're missing something and we're missing you. So let's engage. Here's the second thing that Jesus redefined. He redefined authority. Think about this. Jesus says, here's what authority is. It's leveraged for the benefit of the lead, not the leader. Jesus came along and he flipped the script. Uh, He turned the whole leadership paradigm upside down. Not just for church leaders, but for anyone who has any authority in any position who claims to be a follower of Jesus. One day, uh, Jesus and his followers, his disciples, they're traveling to Jerusalem. And as they're traveling to Jerusalem, they're they're heading down the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus hears uh, the kids arguing in the back seat. And they're going, well, who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom? Because they're going, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going to set up a kingdom. In their mindset, that's what he was doing. He's going to set up, he's going to restore, he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. He's going to establish his his kingdom and he's going to be the king. And so they're arguing who gets to sit at his left and who gets to sit at his right when his kingdom comes into power. They're arguing about this. Because if you are closest to the king, when the king comes into power, then you get lots of benefits. And Jesus hears them arguing, and he pulls over the minivan on the side of the road. He says, oh, let's talk about this. Everybody sit down and listen. And here's what he says. He says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. You know that's how it works, right, guys? And they go, yeah, of course we know that's how it works. That's why we're arguing about it. Of course that's how it works. That's why we want the benefits. The person who's leading is above the person being led. And so the goal is to get to the top of the pyramid because then you get the most benefits. You get all the advantages. That's how it works. And then Jesus says, but among you it will be different. Not in my kingdom. Not in my movement. Not in my church. Not in my body. Not in my gatherings. Don't you dare leverage your authority simply for your own benefit. That is not how it works. He continues, he says, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, came not to be served, but to serve others. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, listen, it works differently. You want to be great, you don't lord it over people, you come under and you serve them. That's how it works in my movement. You want to be great in my movement? You become the slave of others. You give your life away in service to others. He said, even I, if anybody could have leveraged their authority for their own benefit, it would have been me. And he said, and yet, I didn't come into this world to leverage my authority, to leverage that for my own benefit, but rather to give my life away for others. And then, just to make sure that they didn't forget, when they got to Jerusalem, he took off his robe and he picked up a towel And he did what they were unwilling to do for each other. He washed their stinky feet. He washed all the toe jam out from between their toes. And then he says this to them. After he gets done washing their feet, he says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master. In other words, we're not greater than our master Jesus. And if... If he could stoop down, this, this job of washing people's feet when they had traveled to your home, that was the job that was reserved for the lowest slave in the household. Jesus decided, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to take the position of the lowest slave in the household, and I'm going to do that for you. And now I've given you an example to follow. And listen, slaves aren't greater than their master. And if I, as your master, am willing to take the position of the lowest slave, then surely you are not too great. 
to treat others the same way. And that means if you ever make it, if you ever get to that place where you're the big shot and you're the one in charge, whether you have 200 employees or 2,000 employees or two employees, whether you have one direct report or 1,000 people working for you, whatever it is, that means all that you are responsible for is washing more feet. That you are to leverage whatever God has entrusted to you for the benefit of the people that you lead, not the other way around. What if every one of us who had anybody working under us got that right? What if we got that right? Let me tell you what would happen. Everybody would want to work for a Christian. Everybody would go, man, I don't believe what they believe. I'm not really a Jesus person, but I want to work for them. Because they, I truly believe, at the end of the day, they're not perfect, but they have my best interests and heart. People would go, well, why, why would we do that? Because that's what Jesus did for me. And I am to love others the way that Jesus has loved me. Here's a third term that Jesus completely redefined. And, and really, when we look at this term, how Jesus changes things, I can't begin to express the emotion around this next topic. Because... This topic is marriage. And when it comes to marriage, the things that Jesus taught were so revolutionary and so extreme that after his teaching on marriage, his disciples weren't even sure they wanted to follow him anymore. In fact, in the first century, women had no rights. Women were commodities. Women were owned. They had no value. They were property. They had no voice. They had no legal standing. They had no legal standing in court. They had no legal standing in society. They were just given uh, as a way to make peace between nations, given away in marriage, divorced, whatever. They, women had no value. They had no place in society. And into that world, Jesus came along. And here's what he taught about marriage. He redefined marriage. And he says, marriage now is characterized by mutual submission, not male domination. Mutual submission, not male domination. When Jesus discussed marriage, he leveled the playing field. The biggest teaching Jesus ever did on marriage is in Matthew chapter 19, and he didn't even bring it up. Somebody asked him about it, and he answers their question. And they asked Jesus about this because they were trying to trick him. They're trying to get him to say something that would make people dislike him. And so they said, hey, the law of Moses says that we can actually divorce our wives, and we can get a new wife. What do you say about it? And Jesus goes into a teaching about it. Now, here's the deal. Jesus knew that the law of Moses was a loophole because women had no standing. And it didn't honor the, the, the spirit of the law. It didn't honor love. And so they knew, according to the law of Moses, if we follow the letter of the law, we can find loopholes. And when we get tired of our wife, we can just divorce her and get a new one. So Jesus, what do you think about that? And we won't go through Jesus' entire teaching on marriage but here's what happens. At the end of his teaching on marriage, you can look at how his disciples reacted. And here is how, this is the best way to understand how extreme his teaching is on marriage. At the end of his teaching, here's what Jesus' disciples say. In Matthew 19, verse 10, Jesus' disciples said to him, If this is the case, it is better not to marry. Jesus, your view of marriage, like the law of Moses says, if we get tired of her, we can get rid of her and get a new one. But you're... Your view on marriage is so extreme, I'm not sure it's worth it. Because when Jesus taught on marriage, men lost their advantage. Because Jesus elevated the status of women. Because Jesus shifted marriage from terms of ownership to partnership. That was so extreme. That was so brand new. The idea that women are equal to men is not a United States idea. It's not a modern idea. I'm telling you, it is a distinctly 
Jesus idea. Jesus was the first one to elevate the status of women. Ladies, you should follow Jesus if for no other reason than that. Jesus elevated the value of women. And then years later, Paul would come along and he's trying to explain, okay, how does this work? How do we live this out? And here's what he writes to a group of people living in Ephesus. He says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's Ephesians 5 verse 21. Then he says something right after that, and it's the verse that most men have memorized. Wives, submit to your husbands. Like, we like that verse. That's a memory verse. Throw that on the fridge. We're going to look at that every week. But if you read the original manuscript from the Apostle Paul, it does not contain, verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, does not contain the word submit. It's not in there. Because it's rooted in the context of the overall conversation. It would be like if you said to me, hey, let's go to the, I'm going to go to the store, do you want to go with me? And I'd say, sure, I'll go with you. I don't have to say, sure, I'll go with you to the store. It's already implied because of what you said to me. And if you read the original manuscript, verse 22, all it says is, wives to husbands. The word submit doesn't even show up. Because it's based on the context of the verse before it where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to husbands. Husbands, you lay down your life for your wife. See, Christian marriage is about asking this question. How did God through Christ treat me And how can I reflect that to my spouse? How did God through Christ forgive me? And how can I do that for my spouse? When I didn't deserve it, God through Jesus moved in my direction. How do I do that for my spouse? See, wives to husbands, husbands lay down your life for the sake of what is best for your wife. Christian marriage is a submission competition. The key word in a great marriage is the word defer. That when I defer and and your spouse defers and and back and forth, when I defer to her and she defers to me and we go back and forth and no, after you, no, 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 after you. The only fights that you should have are no, 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 I insist. No, we, you know, we did your thing last time. Let's, I want to, like, that's the most powerful relational dynamic in the world is when two people are constantly putting each other first and not because their spouse deserves it, Paul says, no, it's because of what Jesus has done for you. He says, this is what it means, as I have loved you, love one another. Paul says, this is what it means in the context of marriage. Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Because of what Christ has done for you, you do that for your spouse. And both of you do that for each other. And it's a submission competition because that's what Jesus did for us. What would your marriage look like if you operated that way? I mean, imagine that, right? Not because your spouse deserves it but because Jesus did for you when you didn't deserve it. Jesus redefined marriage. Here's the fourth term, spirituality. Spirituality, Jesus completely redefined spirituality. Here's what Jesus says. Spirituality is now defined by how well you love, not by how much you know. It's defined by how well you love, not by how much you know. This is all through the teachings of Jesus and and the writings of his followers. It's difficult to miss this point, and we cannot emphasize this enough in our context. Paul wrote this to the, in his letter to the Galatians. He said, this is, this is how you know that someone is spiritual. They, they have fruit. He says, when you look at a tree, you can tell what kind of tree it is based on the fruit that it grows. And the same thing with a Jesus person. You can tell that they're a Jesus person because they grow certain fruit. 
There's, there's this spirituality. And he says, this is what it looks like. The fruit of the Spirit is insight, knowledge, understanding of the deeper things of faith, and the ability to make people hang on your every word. Nope. It's not in there. You're like, I don't, I don't remember hearing it that way. It's, it's weird. Maybe you have a different translation than me. I don't, what's going on? He's so smart. That was so deep. Did you understand that? No. But man, it was deep. Man, I felt guilty when I left there. That must have meant it was spiritual. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how it applies to my life. But boy, it, 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 he, he used some big words. Here's what... Spirituality is. It's determined by how well one loves. The Apostle Paul actually writes this. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. These are all horizontal. Every one of these. Love, joy, peace, patience. They're all, uh, they're all this way. They're not this way. They're all external. Every one of them. You can't claim some inner spirituality and not have something external that is some type of fruit that shows that you're loving well. Jesus says this is what spirituality is. They're cross-cultural. It works in every language and in every culture. It's not a USA version of Christianity or spirituality. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, these things are cross-cultural. They work in every culture. They work in every ethnic group. They work in every nation. So never be fooled. Never be fooled by the person who knows a lot but doesn't love well. That's not spirituality. See, never be fooled by the spiritual leader who can pitch their voice in just such a way. It makes you miss it. That's not spirituality. A gifted communicator doesn't mean that they love well. That has nothing to do with spirituality. In the Jesus movement, spirituality isn't measured by charisma. It isn't measured in giftedness, which means the most spiritual person you know may not be the person who knows the most about the Bible. The most spiritual person that you know is the person who has somehow captured what it means to do for others what Jesus has done for them. Spirituality is not defined by how much you know. It isn't limited to being able to read. It isn't limited to being able to learn. Spirituality is about how well you love. Here's the last term that Jesus completely redefined. Holiness. Holiness. Growing up, I, I always thought of holiness as being set apart from. And yet, in the Jesus movement, holiness means being a part of, not setting oneself apart from. Here's what I mean by that. Holiness is about engaging with and becoming a part of, not setting oneself apart from. That's old temple model thinking. And I've got to separate myself from the unholy ones and the unclean ones and the people who live a certain way or act a certain way or believe a certain way. Well, we've got to be careful because if we interact with those people and they live this way or they believe that way or if they're a part of our church and they think this way or believe that way or interpret scripture incorrectly or whatever that means, it might appear that we condone their behavior. We don't want to appear to condone their behavior, so we've got to separate ourselves from them. Folks, Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors, and he was never worried that people would fear that he was condoning their behavior. In fact, his reputation was he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. In Matthew, he's hanging out at Matthew's house, and the Pharisees are hanging out in the cul-de-sac. They won't even come into Matthew's yard. 
They send in a messenger. And they're like, why do you hang out with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. In fact, in the Jesus movement, holiness is not about come out from among them and be separate. Holiness is engage with people who need God's love. See, that's temple model thinking. We're worried about reputation. Well, won't, won't people think that we're agreeing with them? Who cares? They're people who need God's love. And in the temple model, sacred is equated with separate. But in the Jesus model, sacred is equated with engagement. It's, it's equated with loving. The, the reason we get confused is because in the Old Testament, there was this old covenant that God had with the nation of Israel. And it was a conditional covenant with one nation in a particular period in time. And in that covenant, in that agreement between God and that nation, God called them out and said, be separate from among these other nations. I'm setting you apart. And then that nation birthed the Messiah. That nation gave birth to Jesus. And then Jesus said, no, there's a new covenant. God's doing something new. And it's an unconditional agreement now with God and humanity. And it is for all people for all time. And it means something new. The best illustration of this idea of holiness is given to us, I think, when John, the, 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 one of Jesus' best friends and his disciple, is writing his account. He's sharing his experiences with Jesus. And he's, he's trying to figure out, how do I write what it was like to be best friends with and to walk with and to, and to follow Jesus, the Son of God? He goes, how, how do I describe it? What do I write? How do I explain what this was like? And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in his account of the life and teachings of Jesus, he writes these words. So the word became human. In his writings, he says, the word was with God, the word was God, everything was created through him and for him. He says, this, this Jesus, he says, this reference that I'm making to him, I'm calling him the word. He says, and, and the word, or the son of God, became human and made his home among us. Now think about that. Time out, John. So what you're saying is, the son of God came into the world, so if he's the holiest of all, and he's, he's Holiness means to be separate, and he's supposed to be holy. How is it that the Son of God then became icky, messy, saliva-filled, blood-ridden human being? Shouldn't, shouldn't he in his holiness remain separate from us? Well, God decided not to stay separate. In fact, God didn't just decide to uh, come meet us. He actually became one of us. And then Jesus started freaking everybody out because he started touching all kinds of unholy things. And in their culture and in their temple model, it was you have to be ceremonially clean in order to worship, in order to be right with God. And then Jesus goes around and he kept touching messy, dirty, disease-ridden, ceremonially unclean people. And the holy people and the religious leaders thought, how can he be from God if he's the son of God and he's holy? How can he be touching unholy and disease-ridden people? And Jesus redefined holiness. That's why. No longer is it defined by being separate. Jesus touched unholy, unclean people. And rather than being contaminated by their germs, they were touched by his power. And they were healed. See, holiness isn't making sure that we don't get touched by unholy and messy people. In the Jesus model, holiness is making sure that they get touched by us. So we shouldn't be surprised that at the end of his time here on earth, Jesus gathers his followers and he tells them, go and make disciples of all nations, 
All nations. Don't stay here. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups. This is for everybody. This is for all people. This is for everybody who you think doesn't see the world the way that you do and you view them as messy. You're to go and touch them and express to them the love that I have given you. Teach them to follow me. In the temple in Jerusalem, they had something called the Holy of Holies. In fact, every pagan temple had this. Every pagan temple had what they called the God Vault. And that would be where the idol of their god would dwell. It would be a room. It would be the god vault. And, and in first century Jerusalem, inside of the temple, they had what was called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was where God lived. And to separate the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, from anybody who was unholy being able to go in there, there was a massive curtain. And it separated the two. And Luke tells us that when Jesus died, the curtain was ripped in half from top to bottom. And holiness was no longer about coming apart from. Holiness is now becoming a part of for the sake of others. That God had left the temple. He didn't live in the temple. And now he's inhabiting portable temples, walking temples, human temples with flesh and bone. And we are to go and represent him everywhere that we go. Now, never confuse giftedness with holiness. The holiest man in history, the holiest man who ever lived became flesh and bone and died covered in filth, covered in his own blood, and covered in your sin and my sin. So, as a church, let's let go of things that are holding us back. As a church, let's let go of the things that make us so easy to resist. As a church, let's let go of anything that creates a barrier between people and God. That unintentionally, and maybe our heart is in the right place, but we've got to be aware that unintentionally as a church, we can create barriers if we're not careful. So let's let go of old things and old ways and old mindsets, and let's embrace the main thing. Let's embrace the Jesus model in everything that we do. What if every one of us got engaged in some way with the body of Christ? What if we decided we would not just consume, but that we would engage with the body of Christ? What if after this, we said, hey, would you join a team, and you just went... Yes. What if there were no spectators? In fact, what if every one of us who was in any type of leadership position leveraged our leadership for the benefit of the people that we led? And what if every marriage determined to lay down their weapons and every marriage determined we're going to submit to one another because of what Jesus has done for us? And what if we asked, what does love require of me? And we lived that out in every situation and in every circumstance. And that is how we decided to define spirituality, not by how much we know, but by how well we love. And what if we understood that holiness meant that God moved in our direction and that he touched unclean and messy people and we decided we're going to do the same? I think we would be a church that would be really difficult to resist. I think that we would represent well who Jesus is to our community and to our world. The result would be a church, an ecclesia, a gathering, a group of people that would be irresistible because Jesus is irresistible. And if you've been resisting Jesus, maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online at uh, some point even later in the week, and you realize I've been resisting faith or God or church or religion or whatever label you want to call it, I've, I've been resisting that because I've been resisting really some things that the church should have been resisting all along. Some type of experience I had or something in my upbringing or one of these views, 
was skewed and it was represented to you in that way? Or an interaction you had with a follower of Jesus that wasn't loving and wasn't kind? I want to invite you to stop resisting Jesus. Because he created you. And he's building a family. And he wants you in it. And he loves you. He died for you. And that means he is for you. And if you have never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, I want to give you the chance. And if you've said yes and then you walked away because of some bad experiences, I want you to say yes again. I want you to say, you know what, I'm ready to stop resisting and I'm ready to say yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family. And you can do that just by agreeing with this simple prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you and I thank you that you never walked away from me. And I want to say yes to the invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to see things the way that you see things. To let go of old things. And to latch on to the main thing. Loving you by loving others well. And may that lead me to live life differently. And God, I pray for every single one of us who are following you. May we see these terms the way that you created them. May we, may we latch on to a brand new way of thinking, the Jesus way. And may our love for you be expressed in the way that we love others. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen.